0: Hey, folks, this is the podcast of Principia Journal of Classical Education. I'm Brian Williams, general editor of Principia Journal and host of Principia Podcast. We are recording a couple miles from Valley Forge on the outskirts of beautiful Philadelphia. Uh, The Principia Podcast, for those of you who haven't listened to it before, is an informal version of the journal where I converse with authors of Principia articles and other scholars connected to classical education where I muse about key moments, educators, texts, and issues in the long tradition of classic liberal arts education. Our first issue of Principia is coming out this month, September 2022, so let me encourage you to find the journal online or at your friendly neighborhood classical conference. Uh, today, we are talking with author, scholar, and professor Dr. Zena Hitz, a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, a city I love uh, a couple hours from here, Um, It's home to the classic learning test and Jeremy Tate and all those wonderful people. uh, I sit on their board of academic advisors and so have an excuse to visit uh, a couple times a year. But Dr. Hitz is the author of a wonderful recent book that I think will be of interest to anybody in the classical ed world called Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, published by Princeton University Press. And it is reviewed in the first issue of Principia by Jesse Hake uh, from Classical Academic Press. Uh, before we talk about the book, first, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hits.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Pleasure to have you. A uh, little background, Dr. Hitz completed her undergraduate degree at St. John's in Annapolis, went on to study classics and philosophy at uh, what in Oxford we would call the other place, the University of Cambridge and the University of Chicago before completing her Ph.D. In, at Princeton University, also just up the road from me about an hour away in New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Hitz, love to start asking people. Just what have you been reading? What did you read this summer? It, it's often a time for academics to kind of pick up stuff they don't usually have time to read. So, what was it for you this summer?
1: Well, um, to be honest, I was reading a lot of Nietzsche this summer. The German- oh, no, <laughs> that's not <Nietzsche> summer reading. <laughs> that's like <laughs>
0: January. That's the dead of winter reading. Okay, what, what were I you- know. I know. Okay, what, what of Nietzsche were you reading?
1: I um, I was reading. I got I taught last spring as part of the Saint John one of the Saint John's sections, yeah. um his essay on the use and abuse of history. Oh yeah. And it it suddenly struck me as being very insightful about a certain kind of defect of academic life. Um and I wanted to try to put my finger on it, so I I I, I read a I led a reading group with um the nonprofit I run called the, the Catherine Project, um, which I can tell you about if you want. Yeah, I want to ask about that later, for sure. But um, I, I led a group with them, and then I, I read a bunch of related works by Nietzsche and some other connected um, books, in trying to get to the same kind of question about when, when historical context is um, not Actually, a a mode of learning, but a mode of um, shutting off learning, or something like that. Yeah,
0: because I want to ask. I I remember this essay well, and spent time with it back in the mid '90s when I first encountered it. But I, it really captured my imagination. I think you have the 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 one space of becoming is a phrase that that is in that essay that I've never let go of. But so so, what was it? What was it? This historical consciousness that he puts his finger on, or that you think is a defect in academic life. It
1: it it has to do with this. Um, I, anyway, I'm still struggling to put my finger on it. So uh, you know, I, I I meant to complete my th- thoughts by the end of the summer, but as sure enough, they're still in the middle. Uh, you know, he talks about um, how how he, the the Germans of his time have become compendia of facts, um, and that they there's a way in which I think. Learning for its own sake, which is something that I normally promote, can become a kind of um, uh, collecting impulse. Which is also, you're defending yourself against real inquiry and real understanding. You're looking for an answer to a question. If you think about the 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 guy, it's usually a guy. Sometimes it's a lady, but it was always saying, "Actually, you know." It's like you ask a question. (laughs) It's like, "Oh, actually," and I guess it struck me over the years that, and I, I'm one of these people too, I had the same impulse. It's not, it's not something I only see in others. Um, it, it's just struck me that it's, it's a really uh, an artifice. It's not really connected with learning or knowledge. It's um, it's connected with trying to remove the discomfort of, of a difficult question.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm sure. I mean, maybe, maybe you're not like me, but I, I know for a long time, stretches of probably undergrad and probably grad school too, I could tell you all about what an author thought and I could do exegesis of that author and I could do, but I but I would get through with an essay like Nietzsche or a book like Beyond Good and Evil, whatever, and not actually tell you what I thought about it or not actually have arrived at any kind of conclusions related to truth or greater understanding of the world, but I could tell you what Nietzsche said. Exactly. But that's about it. And and I and I think there's a certain mode right even even in, in writing articles. I mean there's a whole industry ar- around that. But it does keep you it seems like to me from arriving at and making a kind of what I guess kind of conclusion uh, or coming to a kind of conclusion or judgment. No,
1: and I I was just I'm now reading the, the Bible with some sophomores at St. John's, and I, I was using for the first time the the new Robert Alter full translation of everything. And, and one of the things he says in one of his introductions is, you know, the, we can't treat this book as a book to be explained. You know, it's, that's, it's not, the impulse to explain is not the right kind of impulse. Um, and one of the things I treasure about his translation is that it, it only just makes it strange, and then and then you're you're put into a position of discomfort, and that's where real learning and understanding takes place, and that's where the real insight
0: comes through. Now it's uh, interesting. Wasn't uh, am, I, am I right? Nietzsche was at Berlin, wasn't he? Uh,
1: I'm <laughs> not. I, I don't remember a lot about his biography. Okay. Being a, being a good St. John student, never uh, having yeah. pretty much well, biography. Well, I, I know that he. I I thought he might have been a Göttingen, but the um, that's right. Maybe that's right. The, uh, but I but I, I'm not I'm not confident. Uh, but I know that he his first book, Birth of Tragedy, was rejected uh, by the academic community, was just panned as as being irresponsible and 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 um, uh, not up to scholarly standards. And I think the history, the history essay is the beginning of the of the revenge.
0: Oh, right. oh.
1: Before, before I think right. and one of the thing lo- things I love about yeah. the essay is that it's he still sounds like a human being. You know, it, it doesn't yeah. sound quite as crazy as he sounds. No, that's like, right.
0: Yeah, no, it's very engaging. I was just I was thinking about Berlin because, you know, it's the rise of the research university in Berlin in, in 1810 and the the introduction of the research seminar, which was in part designed, if you've read Chad Wellman's book on the rise of the research university, to manage all this explosion of data from the 19th century and the re- and just to go in and pour over all of this, this data. Um, In research seminars, but not to arrive necessarily at a at a conclusion like we're talking about. When Newman, when John Henry Newman in the 1860s sees this kind of methodology coming into Britain through University College London, he compares it to seeing the backside of a tapestry, but never walking around to the front. It's like scattered bits of little data and information, but he says, you're actually not putting the whole thing together. And I always, and or it's like undigested chunks of data in one's gullet i always found that really useful
1: no and i think chad i had a cover i don't remember how clear this is in in the books but he he said something when i saw him recently that suggested that he thought that the whole the university in a way was an attempt especially this type of university the research university that it was in a way an attempt to contain and control those human questions and to keep them from being alive and big and transformative um, and especially, of course, religious questions, which they had a very ambivalent. ambivalent. Well, and, and the
0: research model, the research model trains us to do that, you know, it trains us to do the research, but never come to kind of a conclusion that we might want to come to like you would in your classes or I would in my classes or help students come to that. And it's interesting. I, it's, a, it's a question I wanted to ask you later, but I'll ask it now because it comes up. I think this is part of the vice of curiositas. So historically, you talk about it as a fascination with splendor. Like, I think it's Olympias' a, a fascination with the gladiatorial games. Uh, I was just in Carthage for a week this summer and went to a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, places. Gladiator that, games? No, glad you didn't, didn't go games, to the gladiator so, no. a, place, okay. a bunch of places <laughs> that Olympias and Augustine went. Um, and you, you focus on it as a kind of fascination with spectacle. But I think I mean, historically it would have also included any kind of disordered misuse of the intellect. And I know in my own life there have been times when I felt like I was intemperately gluttonous for data or knowledge. That that I think was you know sounds like what we're talking about.
1: No, I think it's a part of the the book that I that that I just wanted I've wanted to develop a little more because I I think that. The way i put it in the book is i do talk about it a little bit in the connection with curiosity plus because it's the enchantment with a feeling of knowing rather than contact with the reality um and and it gives you a sense of um satisfaction and strength and you know this kind of puffed fake sort of puffed upness it's a sign of something that's going wrong um uh, rather than just this kind of humility and awe, which is this this sign of of contact with reality. Uh, so I, I, it's it's the, the the seeds of it are in the book, but but they're not fully worked out. And I definitely have not taken on this this tradition that that Nietzsche's in the middle of and um, of of thinking about um, historical research in connection with the human questions and the ways in which, and it, it's it's a bit painful for me because I I. I sometimes love historical research and think that I've gotten things out of it. <laughs> yeah, but i but I also can see that there's something off. and i I really want for my own sake, just to try to figure out what where where the boundary lines are um and and, and with what most things it's probably can work out,
0: yeah. it's probably a a, uh, a kind of temperate, virtuous, you know, mean there somewhere, right? Because there is a sense in which I enjoy knowing historical. I enjoy having a historical understanding and it's up uh, for its own sake. I mean, that's one of the parts of, you know, I, I like knowing what happened where I live. I like what, no. I like knowing what happened in second century Carthage. Why? I, because it's kind of the world I live in, but I think it's just fascinating. And so, but it, it's having a kind of, I guess, an ordered love maybe, or, or not allowing, not making sure that doesn't keep me from actually pursuing questions of kind of truth, goodness, and beauty in touch with real world, the real world or something, right? Is that it?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> it's because I think from at least my understanding of an ordered love, it's not just an arbitrary, I mean, I'm sure you agree with me. It's yeah. not just an arbitrary restriction, right. you know, not too much. It's right. it's restriction with an end in view. So it's, it's trying to find the way to articulate the end in view that really clarifies what historical research can be good for and what how it can be how it can be abused i think it's also it's connected to to much broader questions i think that's one of the reasons why i'm struggling and taking a long time with it questions about the way that science is used in our culture as as a way to um push away the desire to learn um which is not of course what what the the deepest and truest sense of science is so uh anyway it's 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 very big, and I'm 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 happy to have the you know to have the opportunity to think about it more. Having people normally begin with a sort of in-depth scholarly detailed work and then popularize it, and I, I just was I'm in the weird situation of having written something popular. But I now <laughs> want to go back and really provide some kind of more serious foundation okay. for. It. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, w- one question, because I, I really love the tradition of curiositas and studiositas, and I and, and really think it's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it in connection necessarily with, with that essay from Nietzsche. Uh, do you know Paul Griffith's book, Intellectual Appetite?
1: I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. Uh,
0: that yeah. was probably the book that introduced me to it for the first time and a book I, I come back to again and again and again. So,
1: yeah.
0: okay. That's great. You no,
1: know, I, when I was first working on this book, um, which was... I guess in you know sort of started in twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen. I think the first draft maybe it was twenty seventeen. Um, anyway, at the time, I felt like I was the only person in the world who was interested in these things. Um, and <laughs> honestly,
0: really? uh, which,
1: thinking about it now, is How's that
0: possible? You're in a you, you know you're in academic context, and you went through the academic world, right?
1: I yeah, but academics aren't interested <laughs> yeah. in this kind right. of foundational yeah. question right. of right. of. Um, you know, in a way, the the morality or the spirituality of what we do. You know, I, what can go wrong with it? Um, but Paul Griffiths was really the, my only fellow traveler in a certain oh, way. wow! Okay. Because, you know, I, I was like, this is someone I actually disagreed with a lot of. Uh, not just that book. There's also a very obscure book he published for the Mennonites. I'm curious. Yeah, a little
0: slender volume of it. Is it like a pamphlet? I've got it on my shelf. Yeah, next to I Oh, app. I'm
1: envious. I'm envious. Yeah. I only have a scan somewhere. But um, the I, I was really grateful to know that someone else was yeah. had really sat down to think about the same questions. Yeah,
0: yeah well, it introduced, uh, you know, I, I realized for me, and we can move off this topic, I just think it's fascinating. It realized for me how much um attention was given to Studiositas and Curiositas in, in the classical tradition. I mean, you see obviously Augustine on it, you see Bernard of Clairvaux, you see Aquinas, you see John Henry Newman, and all the kind of morality stories about Curiositas versus you know Studiositas, whether it's Icarus or the magician's apprentice, the sorcerer's apprentice, or Little Mermaid, or Eve, it's in Milton. You know, I, I just didn't. I hadn't seen all that, but when I started looking at it and realizing, oh yeah, this is a subset of, I don't know, intemperance or gluttony or something here, I, I was fascinated to discover the whole tradition uh, and how much thought had been given to this, at least historically.
1: Well, I'll just throw in a few more yeah. things that I've been thinking about more recently in that connection, which is that yeah. um, it's it's also in the Platonic dialogues in, in a very obvious way. So uh, in obvious, so obvious that I never noticed it until recently. <laughs> even though I've been working on Plato supposedly my whole life. Um, But, you know, the critique of of writing in Plato's Phaedrus, in in many ways, and his his poking fun at these people who, who love to debunk myths, you know, it's like, oh... You know they say that boreas the wind god Boreas, you know s- swept away this woman from this spot, but in fact, she was just pushed by a hurricane wind actually uh, right it's, it's actually
0: <laughs> actually. <person. laughs>
1: and and the the thought that um there's there's a mode of thinking which is alive um and r- you know written in the souls of living beings, and um that's what. The intellectual life is really about, and that um, th- this we there's this. I, I'm using psychological language, but there's all kinds of ways you could talk about it. But there's an anxious, defensive way of talking, as if one knows something, um, whereas in fact, what you're doing is just doing anything to avoid. Facing that question or facing that that piece of reality. Um, yeah, let me
0: ask you a question. Can I follow up? I want to I want to ask you a couple of questions about the book, but sure. it's long struck me that maybe the the vices of this age, I don't know, this is gonna sound very grandiose. Um, uh, but if I think of the students I've taught over the last few decades, it seems like cynicism and skepticism are the kind of you know, the vices or the the traits that I see in students a lot which lead to a kind of, you know, acedia or despair, listlessness, kind of spiritually or intellectually. So I'm curious how you help students through that or avoid that. And I guess a follow up question is, you know, we know that, you know, liberal arts, great books, education doesn't necessarily, you know, make people, Moral, or give them a kind of ordered spiritual life, right? So, I don't want to. I suppose on the one hand, I don't want to graduate, you know, um, people who are cynical and and skeptical. Uh, I don't want to graduate simply like more clever devils, as C.S. Lewis calls them, either. Like the kind of education we're involved in, you know, great books, liberal arts education. Um, let me two two part question. One. How do you help your students avoid that? The cynicism and skepticism that leads to kind of despair. And does it require introducing them to a kind of a, a, a spiritual or transcendent tradition? How important do you think that is?
1: That's a great pair of questions. Um, let me say, first of all, that I think um, that I alone don't do much for my students. I mean, I'm a good teacher. I care a lot about my students. But I one of the things that makes me able to do good work is being in a, a very um a, a very unusual environment, which is St. John's. Yes it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's um, you know, the the faculty we'll all say something different about what a great book is and why we do it. But we all have very common ideas about what teaching practice should look like. Um, and what kinds of things count as success and what kinds of things count as failure. And uh, so we have that shared vision. The students who come um, tend to have some inkling of that vision, varying degrees. Of course, they are not yeah. You know, eighteen-year-olds don't always know just exactly what they're getting into. Um, but so I have a lot yeah. of advantages yeah. in this respect, and and we get students who are already sure. you know, ready to ready to do something different. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'm just hesitant to say that somehow I have a trick that somehow can solve all these problems that I don't. Um, but that doesn't mean my I mean my experience is worthwhile because of course yeah. the people listening to this are often people who are trying to build institutions or trying to maintain yeah. them, and it it does really matter the kinds of the kind of culture that you have. Um,
0: yeah, and your- they you know a lot of people listening to this will be working with K to twelve schools, and so be asking themselves okay themselves, how do we create a culture? That exactly. you know nurtures the intellectual appetite, nurtures a kind of open receptivity and wonder, and affirmation of the world's goodness. Nur and and avoids, you know, or helps students avoid kind of nurturing skepticism and, and cynicism. I guess. And so you know, St. John's is a is a is a model, perhaps.
1: Yeah. So I I suppose one thing I want to say, which which you might disagree with, or some of the hearers might disagree with, is that cynicism and skepticism, to me. Maybe it's because I was a cynical, skeptical young person (laughs) and grew out of it But by the grace of God, but um, it's not the worst thing that I fear for my students. The Ah, thing I fear most is um, a kind of blind uh, professional conformism hmm. that is is much more dominant now than when I was young. Uh, a, a, A sense that... To do what, what is done, what everyone else is doing, and the way that they're doing it is absolutely necessary, you know, and okay. it's crazy to question it. That I find much more frightening um, and much more concerning. And cynicism, so maybe this is to console those of you who are parents or teachers of cynical, <laughs> cynical or or uh, skeptical students, cynicism, skepticism can be a step. And I don't want to be stuck there, but it can be a step um, away from um, this this really relentless and cruel culture to which we've begun to subject our young people,
0: which is a kind um, of instrumental careerism. Is that what you have in mind? That's too? a
1: lot of it. Is 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 the worship of success, uh, the worship of status, um, the the real uh, a real terror of. Um, independent thinking independent living taking risks taking chances adventures um, all of these things which i think it's it's hard even for us to see it because we're we're there it, it was really a sea change whenever it was 20 years ago uh, how whenever it happened yeah, what it do you think prompted pretty- it is? i don't know yeah, i really okay. know. I mean i you know i could blame technology i'm sure that's part of it but i i, I don't understand yeah. it. I, yeah. I i only just look for the fact. So so that's one thing I can say is that cynicism and skepticism can be uh, a a midpoint. You know, you you know that something's wrong and that's that's the first step. Um and and especially if you're dealing with a a very broad diverse set of of students of young people, there some of them are going to be cynical and they're they're going to be skeptical. And I think to to really and I think the response for me or for my colleagues has been you you set a positive example in yourself of what's possible in learning you know you I I try to bring my own enthusiasm about the books and about the questions into the classroom um and also to um and to to try to promote an environment where people can speak openly and sincerely and ask themselves Um, without judgment. And that's extremely challenging to do because part of what part of the disease is, is the social media disease where you, you, you have an alt, you know, you have a a face that's presented to the world and, and, and that's, you don't, you don't ever want to let that down. Um, And you don't ever want to, to put yourself at risk by, by just being yourself in the classroom. So that's, this is what we're, and, 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 you know, you try all kinds of things, you, you model it, yourself I you know, I make mistakes, not on purpose, but I don't, I will keep myself from doing it. Um, and I also try to, um, as much as I can provide an atmosphere of support and concern for each of those students so that they know that it, it, they're not going to be dropped or thrown to the wolves or thrown to the sharks. If they, if they make a mistake, or if they say something wrong, or if they go up to the board to do a proof and it just doesn't come out right so, uh, so and that I think i I really believe that the the goods of learning are if if they're they're not hard to there's a lot of obstacles, but once they're in front of you, if you have regular access to them, I think, then the wholesomeness and the the idealism and the 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 peace of mind and heart that we all want for our young people and for ourselves. I think, it, I think it's, it's there for us. So we, I don't, I'm not. Um, I, You're not concerned I'm, about
0: cynicism and skepticism. I get and, I, and fair enough. I think, I think it's, I think my concern is students who come in with that and think that's all there is and never move beyond like a kind of acid bath of cynicism towards the world, you know, and everything and everybody in the world and it, that it's all a kind of Nietzschean will to power. And there's nothing out there to really be, you know, it's true good no
1: no 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 but i but i what i'm yeah. i tried what i'm trying to say you're not it's saying it very quickly is that you the, the alternative has to be for real you know it can't just be in words so you you have to provide by the example of your life and by the example of the way you live it in the classroom a, a, a sense that that's not true by not working power in your classroom by not um you know uh, by and by opening people up to just these these very hum, in a way very humble goods right beautiful poetry and
0: well, uh, stories
1: um, and good conversation yeah. and um and uh you know very difficult questions which are really not amenable to to models of success if if they see that you're a real deal um then then they'll, their cynicism might start to abate but if you try to manage them and 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 get them to a certain outcome. They're going to see straight through that.
0: Yeah, and that's fostering real conversations in class, right? And really having conversations and not orchestrated and not where, where you're really, say, you know, and you present yourself again as a fellow learner. I often we run an MA program for classical teachers in at my college, and I often tell our teachers that you need to be the kind of people you want your students to become, and so you've got to model that for them in there now and, and that goes to the importance of learning in community, doesn't it? Uh the importance of being part of a community. I mean your book is on the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life. There's a lot in there obviously about the need for retreat, the need for the need for asceticism, the need to pull back and sit in one's basement where I'm in right now and you know read. Uh, but also to to balance that with the importance of learning in community, it's I think, right? Is that what we're I mean, part of this?
1: That's definitely part of it, happen, right? Yeah. That's, that's definitely part of it. I think one more thing I would add, especially for a K through 12 crowd is, uh, uh, and, but it's true in higher education too. A lot of our vision of education has become very scripted and very controlled and very, it's, it's outcomes driven. It's, I mean, I, I have a, a, a classmate from St. John's who, who wanted to teach in the public schools in Baltimore, and went through a bunch of training and once he realized he was going to get a script and a timer,
0: <laughs>
1: he backed out.
0: Yeah, uh, and, yeah. okay,
1: no, that's the that's the extreme, right? Is a script and a timer. But yeah, I think a lot of us find ourselves in situations like I'm that. Oh, I've got that. to get through this amount of material. I've oh, this routine always works. Oh, the students always like this. Whereas what you really need is is your classroom to be an environment that's spontaneous and where there's real in time interaction with the real people that are there.
0: Yeah. Hey, um, let me ask different. a question.
1: And that, that also I think helps to break down the, the source of that cynicism, which is, which is again, a, a justified reaction to a lot of the stuff that they're Yeah, I
0: think I, you might be right. Maybe that cynicism and skepticism is in part a response to the educational system in which a lot of our students come up, which I, I would be pretty cynical and skeptical about too. And so, right? And so I think what we're trying to do in classical education is give students a, a poetic encounter with reality, nurture their affection for things that are truly beautiful, and give them a sense that what, uh, of their own, I mean, perhaps uh, their own intellectual appetites maybe and the wonder and the goodness of the world. So so one thing that a, a lot of classical schools do uh, try to introduce in their upper schools are seminars. And we often, well, I do at least distinguish between Socratic teaching, which is kind of leading through question, the kind of a linkist model, and St. John's style seminar, which I don't know that we see, you know, Socrates or anybody doing in the ancient world, but it is. Yeah. Can you get just tell us what a St. John's seminar is like? Because I've had a number of classical school administrators and deans come to me over the years and say, how do we introduce seminar? How do we nurture students so that they learn how to do this well? So can you tell us a little bit about the St. John's seminar, would you?
1: Sure. I I think one of the ways I would describe the value of a Saint John's seminar in in the in the context of what we're talking about the the overcoming of 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 what might be justified cynicism uh is um it's a a way for students to um take responsibility for their own learning um a way for them to um Uh, see that their learning in their classroom belongs to them and that there's learning is not something that someone does to you or for you it's something that you do so for that reason the St. John's seminar is um, much more open-ended than a normal class there's an assigned reading it's often kind of a long reading it doesn't have to be but it can be pretty long and I think the pedagogical reason for that is that it, it can't be controlled or exhausted. That is, you don't know as the teacher what angle someone is going to come at it. So uh, we teachers are constantly being put on our back feet and we don't tend to like that. We tend to want to know what's gonna happen when we step into the classroom.
0: If I lecture, I'm in control and I know exactly what it's gonna look like. And it's actually it's actually quite easy. But a seminar is you walk in with a little bit of of my first day of class. One of my freshmen asked me how I was feeling. And I said, well, there's always a little fear and trepidation in me because I don't really know how a a class over semester is going to go. And I don't know how any one day is going to go.
1: Exactly. So I, I think of a seminar for a teacher as being an enormous act of trust, that is, that the the readings which have been selected are, are time tested. They're 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 full of meaning. They're full of uh, passages to understanding. And these students have a natural desire to learn. And if I just sit back, I I try to come up with one good question at the beginning of the seminar. This is what's called an opening question at St. John's, a question which should probably be one that I have myself. You know something that I'm wondering about, but which also might open up the book for a new or the text for a new reader. Uh, so it's not easy to come up with a question like that, but you you know you can work at it, and um and then just to sit back and see how the students choose to lo- use their capacity to learn, and sometimes it's a it's a very um, high drama type of classroom. So. It can be the best classes you've ever taught in your life. You can want to weep with joy at what they're doing. And there are times when it's enormously painful and you, you really wish you had just given those cheesy lecture notes from 1985 that (laughs) you worked out a long time ago and they're perfectly good. Yeah. Um, And a lot of
0: scraps and little bits of data that you'd give them, right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Actually, you know, (laughs) uh, so, um, but I, 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 I'm really persuaded and I was of course first persuaded as a student at St. John's when, when, when classes were, we were, for all our complaining about the young people, we, we were very chaotic people and our classes were, were strictly speaking worse than the ones that they have now. I mean, our students tend to prepare for class. They tend to come to class. They tend to um, be somewhat sane, um, functioning individuals in a way that we weren't. Um, but they, they, um, you know, they, they, they work. They do yeah. good work, even yeah. when you can't see it happening.
0: Yeah. Um, and you how- have to.
1: So you have to kind of, on the one hand, wait for those moments yeah. where it's really going to manifest itself. And then on the other hand, you have to sit back and really trust that, that it's worthwhile for them to have that encounter with those books and to work out their difficulties with one another and to be left with that responsibility for their own classroom and for their own learning. And that is more important than any content you can give them.
0: Yeah, I, I often tell my students, I mean, they, they sometimes think, like you said, that learning or education is something done to me. And yeah. they come and sit in my class. And they kind of go, "All right, well, mine, but you know, do it to me. All right, I'm here exactly. now. Exactly. You got you got 60 minutes to do it to me, and I'll go through. Okay, is it done? Can I leave? You know, it, it's yeah. a little bit like that. Question: Do your so the new students coming in? I have a new freshman cohort in our honors college right now, and we do seminars around great books. Mm-hmm. Do you model for your new students? Do your faculty model how to have a seminar? or do you teach them how to have a seminar or do you just like launch them into day one and say, here's the text of Augustine and ask him a question or whatever. Um,
1: there are different. Traditionally we've just jumped into it and it takes a long time for the, the freshmen to learn how to do it, but it is unbelievable when they do, they do learn and it's unbelievable. Um, they I think they have begun under some outside pressure in recent years to to try to put in something that seems like training. The difficulty or modeling <laughs> yeah. the difficulty yeah. is that um if you really want it to be student driven, then almost anything that you that you put out there as a guideline can be. Um, gamed or abused or twisted or turned around or used as a used as a strict rule when in fact just it's just a guideline so i i think that truthfully um doing it in real life with real life guides is is just the best way they they do have i mean they have some beautiful filmed conversations as you know we were just talking before we started at, at um at a classical academic press. So I, I think if if people really have no idea and they're trying to do this with fewer resources than a whole college, I think it's definitely worth watching something um, or watching a few different kinds of things just to get a sense. But I, but I, I, I would really encourage anyone to make it, uh, shape it according to their own interests, the, the, their own personal styles um, it's it's really not meant to be a straight jacket.
0: Yeah, and it, it's pretty wonderful when it comes together. One of the things we do is we have upperclassmen model it for our under our freshmen, and so we have the upperclassmen sit in a circle, and we throw we give them a small text, and we just just leave it to them. And you know they talk for half an hour about what's the right question, and they're you know they're asking questions with questions and responding with the questions, and they're opening. Then somebody will summarize it and bring it back. And it's really beautiful. And then we ask the freshmen, what did you observe? And every year we do this, they nail it. They're like, oh, they were really polite and respectful. Oh, they spent a long time We're asking the question. And it, it, you know, and you realize, yeah, by the time they're seniors, they understand how to do this. And it's much better than us modeling or telling it to them just for them to see their fellow students a couple of years older do it really well. So
1: We have a practice, we we actually just had, we have a practice a bit like that. I had forgotten about it, but it is actually important for this reason. We have a practice called an all-college seminar where we'll have on a weeknight evening, you know, we'll read a short story or a poem or just some little thing. And people from all the different classes will come together. And that has an effect similar to what you're talking about. It's not an observation model, but you're, you're in class with people that know how to do it. And then suddenly things start to click. And it's also encouraging for, for the, those of us who are teaching freshman classes for the first time. <laughs> yeah. you know, we have some people that just came to the college, you know, and they're like, oh, no, it'll it always be like this. Yes. And, but then they can see that people really do learn and they really do yeah. develop and they really do learn how to have a conversation. It really is possible.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's really beautiful. That's great. Hey, uh, I want to ask a couple questions about about the book itself. I, I'm just curious how, how you um why this book at this moment in time. um. You know, lost in thought, the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life. I think it would be a great book for faculty at K to twelve schools to pick up and read as a summer read, or a, instead of having faculty meetings, they should read books and you know have conversations about about your book. Um, and so, I, you know, why this book at this moment in time, and what do you think it offers? You know, a, a crowd like the K to twelve classical teacher.
1: Well, I um. In a way, the book at the time it was 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 just a response to my own personal situation. That is, I, I had um, had a variety of intense intellectual experiences as a, as a child, as a liberal arts student, as a graduate student, as a professor and a scholar, um, and uh, had really just lost sight for a period of time of of, of how to do it and why it mattered. Um, I had a very intense experience in a monastery, a sort of uh, get down to basics experience experience, which which helped really helped me to think it through. And I came back to St. John's and um you know, I reconnected with all of my academic friends from when I was away. and what i what I quickly learned was that things as bad as they ever were were had gotten a million times worse. and i I, I started to read, the literature, so to speak, the the magazines and newspapers as they were writing about the crisis in the humanities. That's what yep. we talked called it yep. in twenty fifteen. Yep. I don't know what we call it now. The collapse, I think. Um, but um,
0: I love reading. I love reading um, John Senior from the seventies who says there's a crisis in the humanities and they're collapsing. And you know you're like oh yeah th- this is this has been collapsing for a long time.
1: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is now it really is. So now it really, so, is, yeah. uh, so, um. Anyway, I was totally dissatisfied with what I read, and and I felt, again, like a crazy person. I tried to talk to my uh, my colleagues about it. This is really true. This is when I realized that St. John's, each tutor has their own way of understanding what they're doing. So I was like, well, I understand it this way. They'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't think it that way at all. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm completely alone in the world. Um, so I, I wrote a little essay about it. Um, and it got published online and then the publisher got interested in it and asked for a book and I thought, okay, I'll write a book. But I, I think that, so for me, it was a way of trying to put together my experiences and articulate them. Um, as far as the time was concerned, I had a very strong sense and I still do that it's a critical moment in education, that the institutions are in an advanced state of collapse. And whether, whether we're going to reform them or whether we're going to build new ones. The, the the important thing for me is not policy. It's not um detailed uh, lesson plans or curricula or things like that. The important thing is to really think about what the goals are. Um, what's what are our models? and what are our human models? um what inspires us? Um, what encourages us? Because um you know you read a lot of magazines and you all you read is about the world coming to an end. I didn't yeah. want to write another. No. The world is coming to an end. Book. I wanted to write yeah. something that said, like, well, takes that for granted. I mean, it is coming to an end. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, everything yeah. is very, very terrible. I, I, I don't want to, to whitewash right. it. Right. But there. That's a, that's an opportunity for us to rethink, yeah. uh, revise, reform, build new things. Um, I, I will
0: say, I will say, it's interesting. So I'm a student of the, the, the liberal arts tradition, the history of it, and so I've spent a lot of time you know, with authors and 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 text. And it, it, it hit me one time that there's a there's an explosion of writing about education um right after the second world war. So you get Dorothy Sayers, you get Joseph Pieper, you get Carl Bart. Then there's a lot of writing about education after the Civil War. And so you get a whole you know black classicists like Anna G. Cooper and William Sanders Scarborough and Du Bois. Then you look at the Reformation. There's an explosion of writings about education with Philip Melanchthon and other humanists. And you just go back and you look at these kind of pivotal moments you know, in, in history where civilization looks like it's not doing well and people are asked the question, what kind of people do we want to be and how do we create those kind of people and that kind of a place? And they end up writing about education. Yeah. Maybe this is one that, of those yeah. moments.
1: I think it is one of those moments. That I think it was just blind. Blind, good luck, you know that I was able to stumble into it. And I'll also say, since I've mentioned more than once how alone I felt, one of the beautiful things about writing a book like that is you you find all the people out there who think like you. It turns out there's there's just tons of there's us. A of us. Tons yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of us. There's a lot of us.
0: I'm sorry you felt alone because there's a yeah, lot, yeah. lot of no, us. There, <laughs> there's tons
1: and tons. They're everywhere yeah. in everywhere the country. They're scattered all over the world. Um, they're and they're they're hungry for connection and for inspiration yeah. and for and to share their the ideas that they're working on. And so I think it's truthfully a very fertile time in education, uh, although it is also very hazardous and I think very dangerous. I think it's exciting. I think there's a lot going yeah, on. And, and I,
0: I think your your book is a really winsome articulation of, I mean, you call it the pleasures of an intellectual life. and And, and I think... That's what, in a way, we need that, and I think that's what classical education and these K to twelve schools and like the college program that I'm part of, the Templeton Honors College, and what you're doing at St. John's. It's trying to, it's not defining ourselves negatively over against. It's holding out a beautiful vision of a well-lived, ordinary life, of of reading and conversation and investigation and understanding and friendship, and I, I think. That's why I think it would be a great book for faculties of schools to read, to give to their parents, maybe have them read, it, you know, chapter at a time, because one of the struggles we face in K to 12 education, and certainly, you know, a little different in higher ed, but a lot of times, you know, parents grew up in the same kind of intellectual milieu that education is about training for gainful employment. And okay, I have my kid in this school, but, you know, when is my kid going to use this? When is my, how's my kid going to apply this? You know, is is a recurring question. And so I think your book, this kind of book, I think it gives teachers a common, would give teachers a common language, would give them a vision for holding out um, before their students and and before their, their parents. Um, you know, rather than trying to justify the humanities and liberal arts instrumentally, you'll get better SAT scores and GRE scores and those kinds of things. I, I think this is saying, no, this is about being human.
1: One of the things that's happened in the in the seven years since I first started working on the book is that I think it's more than clear that all of those pragmatic arguments were totally ineffective. They did nothing. They did nothing. So they were supposed to be the kind of secret weapon that just you know moved minds and hearts and kept the whole thing going. But and it of course doesn't surprise me because what why would um why would something so patently insincere and and manipulative <laughs> ever work
0: yeah that's right
1: you know it's but, it's if you if you think if you talk down to the people that you're trying to persuade that it's it's a recipe for disaster so no, I, well,
0: yeah one of, my, and one of was my one of the
1: reasons why i i, I mean you you know you mentioned Peeper and 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 people like that and what one decision I did make when i was writing was you know i don't I don't feel that the mantle of professorial authority stands the way that it once did. <laughs> so, so I, I can't appeal to that. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you what things look like from, yeah. from the life I've lived and the way things look to me now. And then you use your own experience and yep. bounce off of it and reflect yourself. And so it was meant to be in that way, a bit of a, you know, um, yeah, a, a bit of a more humble stance. Of- well,
0: and it's lovely. And I will say for people who haven't read it yet, it's it's also part memoir. It's also, it's not just Dr. Hits examining Nietzschean, you know, thought it's, it's, really,
1: it's partly your he memoir. Actually, I think doesn't even appear. I think, he's no, not I don't think he
0: does either. And okay. there's a lot of books in there that you referenced that wouldn't make it onto a St. John's reading list or a Templeton Honors College reading list. I mean, is it Elena Ferrante, my beautiful friend? I read the first of the Tetralogy, I guess it is, and loved it. Yeah. And, you know, you have you pair that with Augustine's confessions in a really nice way. So you do a really nice job. I mean, the, the scholarship is there, but it's a light touch, as we, as we say, interspersed with your own uh, memoir and reflection. So it's lovely.
1: Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for all your kind words. about the no, project.
0: absolutely. Hey, uh, so tell us before we, we go here. I have a dozen other questions, but uh, what's the Catherine Project? I won't keep you here all, all day long, but tell us about the Catherine Project.
1: So the Catherine Project is a, is a nonprofit organization. Uh, I founded it in the fall of 2020 in peak pandemic.
0: Oh, wow. Um,
1: and um, ran it for a year out of my Twitter account without any budget or anything. But what we do is we, 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 we're trying to unplug Great Books Education for adults uh, from any kind of grading, credentialing apparatus, and and we are relishing the freedom that that gives us. So we run tutorials and reading groups um, based on great books. We have volunteer tutors um, for the tutorials. So the tutorials are led by by PhD holders. They're small. They're um, opportunities really to be brought into, mentored in 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 this type of reading and thinking and conversation. And then we also have reading groups, which are a bit more freestanding, open-ended, and spontaneous. Everything is free. Everything is open to anyone who really wants to do it. Anyone who has a serious interest.
0: Did you say so, it's free.
1: Uh, say it again.
0: You say it's free.
1: It is free. Totally, one hundred percent free. Uh,
0: <laughs> Great books. <so, laughs> so wow. So okay. we, we online. To, I'm guessing.
1: We want to, and it's, and yeah, most of our meetings are online. We've we've yeah. been working on developing some in-person things, but yeah. we started online and will stay online for as long as that's a fruitful way for us. And, and yep. it is. I mean, there's so many people who we all know who have, that's their only access to yeah, this. that's day. right.
0: They don't have the kind of community that you and I have. I mean, I talk about our faculty of friends all the time. I, I, I have a, you know, embarrassment of riches kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, but that's yeah. not the situation for most people. And it's actually not the situation for a lot of teachers in K to 12 schools. They have faculty, but lots of times, not many of those faculty have necessarily been classically educated. So even on our school systems, I I started and others started, you know, graduate programs for our teachers. But it's different than this. But but I think it's it's because there was such a hunger to just spend time reading the good books.
1: No, it's um, it, we've also really been trying to build we build communities. I mean, our our groups are very small. We we learned early on that Zoom is something which works on a, a the smaller format the better. So our, our groups are, are never larger than about ten. They're often as small as about five or six, um, and and we're we're trying to build real community based on real goods for people all over the place from all walks of life, and to make that as available as possible. Yeah, um,
0: that's so, that's wonderful.
1: So we, we, if you would know anyone who's interested in that, please come onto our web our website, Catherineproject.org. And uh, if if you if you are a person who would like to donate to a project like that, please consider donating. Uh, we're getting <laughs> a fall fundraising drive okay. uh, to keep ourselves going. Uh, we're very we're very uh, small and simple, but we do need money to run. So that, that's that's uh,
0: wonderful. And who's helping you do that uh, besides yourself? Is it St. John's grads or who do you have uh, recruited? Oh.
1: So uh, we we have a a brilliant executive director named Jordan Weiner, who who, uh, is a a St. John's grad from the Graduate Institute. Um, And then we have a team of amazing volunteers. Um, The reading group leaders are often my former students, they're St. John's students who have all of these talents, which in the ordinary working world have no place to go. And then a variety of, of faculty members, professors from all over the country who have also they find this kind of teaching really satisfying and it, it takes them out of their ordinary work. And so we've we've been really lucky in a lot of ways to have so many excellent volunteers.
0: That's great. Uh, obvious question is why is it called the Catherine Project?
1: Uh, we we there are two Catherines, primary Catherines. We oh. we we welcome all Catherines. Uh, <laughs> as Catherine said. Um,
0: we already have one. Thank you. Yeah, no.
1: The, the two the two primary Catherines are Catherine of Alexandria, the, the patroness of philosophers. And uh, Catherine Doherty, who, who founded uh, the Catholic community called Madonna House, she ran a, um, a lending library, uh, the, the, the first national lending library in Canada. Uh, so before the public library system was properly up and running, mail books to the remotest parts of the, and it was a similar type of simplicity as the Catherine Project. People would donate books, and then people would write to her asking for them, and she would send them out and they would send them back. So it, it was th- that, that kind of project I've always thought was very inspiring. And the kind of thing I think that we need now is just some kind of old fashioned, simple grassroots organizing to to get people together. Read good books yeah. and talk to each other. and, and oh, that's great. Um, okay, yeah.
0: so the people can find it at thecatherineproject.org. Is that right? That's
1: correct, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: That's great. All right, well, <laughs> huge thank you. Uh, Dr. Zena Hitz, for spending time with us today. People who are listening, you should go buy a copy of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life published by Princeton University Press. Was it in 2020 or 21 that it came out?
1: 2020 hardcover 2021 paperback and it's out in Spanish right now. I'm very excited. Fantastic.
0: Well, Mm -hmm. thank you uh, for spending time with me. I really uh, enjoyed our conversation. Um, And with that, folks, we will sign off and I'll let you get on with pursuing the true, good, beautiful, holy, healthy and beneficial wherever you are. (laughs) You've been listening to Dr. Brian Williams, and this is the Principia Journal podcast.